Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So yesterday, uh, there was a meeting at Insight LA for the teachers, and they did a really wonderful teaching on um, the second foundation of mindfulness, which is Vedana, or Vedana, from the Satipatthana Sutta. And I wanted to share a little bit with you. And if you happen to see uh, the Facebook post for the sit, I had posted a little line, a couple of lines from Rumi. It says, maybe you are searching among the branches for what only appears in the roots. And to me, that line from Rumi sums up all of the Buddhist teaching. In Buddhism, we go to the roots, and we uproot what doesn't serve us, uh, what gets in the way of truth and the path and awakening. So we, we go to the root and we uproot it. And one of the ways that we practice, for those of you who have been around for a while, is um, practicing with the four foundations of mindfulness from the Satipatthana Sutta. And the first one we've been already talking about and referencing, which is mindfulness of the body, working with the breath, awareness of the body, anchoring in the body. And we'll talk more about that. And the second one is uh, Vedana. It's mindfulness of feeling tone. Unlike psychology, it's not about emotions and feelings. It's about moment-to-moment experience is colored by whether we feel it's pleasant or unpleasant or we're fogged out or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant pleasant, and that's happening all the time through our six sense doors, constantly uh, occurring, and we're not always aware of it, and we're not always aware of the impact of Vedana feeling tone. It's a great teaching. I've, I've taken classes just on Vedana. One of the classes I took, um, we had this phone contact. There were people from all over the world on this class and what we would do is and the people from like Norway and Sweden and Japan and South and I was just amazing is we'd just have a Vedana dialogue like right now in this moment my jaw's a little tight and I'm feeling self-conscious and my thought is I have nothing to say and that's unpleasant right and then the next person would say, right now I'm so excited to talk to people from different continents and learn the Buddhist teaching. It's so pleasant and exciting. Well, right now I feel so self-conscious because everybody sounds so smart and I, I feel really dumb and I barely understand Vedana and I feel a tightening in my chest unpleasant. And we would do this for two hours. <laughs> and it was great. We really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. We did it for about six or eight weeks. And what happened was that um, this is a way to practice awareness in the moment, is to tune in to the experience.
experience subtly, the subtle experience of what you're doing with pleasant and unpleasant, what the body-mind is doing. And we are hardwired when it's unpleasant. We are hardwired to push it away and not be with it. Hardwired. It's, uh, you study neuroscience, it's quite profound. I would say an example of that is uh, one time I had a very bad meal in a restaurant where near I live, where, you know, right near where I live. It's just terrible. I took a bite and it was very unpleasant, highly unpleasant. And even though that restaurant has changed hands, it's hard for me to go in the restaurant because there's a hard wire. That un physical sensation of the unpleasant was so strong in memory, and we react from that, and sometimes unconsciously and unskillfully. So that's one way that um, we need to cultivate what's really happening with unpleasant. You could see this in uh, relationships. Sometimes you have a very unpleasant exchange with a friend. It's hard to stay friends. It's hard to be there and work through the unpleasant. We want to just move on. You know, or skip over it. You don't want to go to it. It's hard to have a difficult conversation. We're not really equipped for unpleasant. And Beth was teaching, some of you know Beth Sternlieb, and she was saying no matter how um, advanced your practice is, we have to really grasp how hard it is to be with an unpleasant emotion or feeling tone that all the great teachers, you know, this is very common, it, this is a true difficulty to develop a real equanimity in it. And another way that uh, we have difficulty with the unpleasant is uh, sitting with our own imperfection, being a human being filled with imperfection and not getting it right, not living up to what we want. And all the thoughts that come with that, the comparing mind, the inadequacy that we feel, the anxiety when we can't do stuff, uh, the defenses, the judgment, the vulnerability, um, we can flood with it, but it's very hard to be present and to hold it, the strong emotion. Um, and so this in itself is a great mindfulness teaching and important. Um, and yet, we're not exactly with unpleasant, but we can cling and crave to um, wanting something else and really cling and get caught. And we, it's hard to let go when it's not going our way and life is not meeting us where we want to be met. And it's not giving us what we want on a, on a global level, a societal level, a per, interpersonal level. It's very hard to get stuck and you could feel it in your body, right? First foundation of mindfulness. You feel your muscles tighten. You're like walking around with tight muscles. The stuckness, I want something else. I don't want what's here. And then um, you can feel the resistance. And this is also what the Buddha taught is there's, we need to let go of the grasping and the clinging. We have to find that way in of releasing the grasping and the clinging to what we don't want and to what we want, right? Big part of the teaching. So um, 
an example of this that I want to give you is uh, a couple of weeks ago, Joel and I joined our community for a uh, little evening protest of uh, the immigration policies of the way children are treated. And uh, we were kind of excited about it. Uh, it's nice to be part of a community. And Joel went and made signs, and people got food, and somebody donated tamales. And people came from all different parts of uh, Long Beach and Orange County, different groups. And oh, it was a great turnout. It was a lot of good spirit. And I got there with the sign. I'm standing in the street, and cars are honking, and I'm with a lot of people. But the Vedana, you know, the Vedana, the feeling tone was unpleasant for me. And I had I something pushing and resisting, and I'm going to cry now, <laughs> probably. But I had to cry for what was going on with children in our, within our borders. I had to sob on the street. And until I could sob, and I let myself sob, I had a really good cry holding the sign of the car honking. <laughs> and I kind of, we don't like to do that. I like was like, come on, Wendy, suck it up. Stop it, right? That's what we tell ourselves. Don't feel. But until I could feel to the core of me what I was protesting about, I couldn't really get beyond it. It was, I had to be real with what was really, really real um, in that moment. And then... When I was done with that, not done with the overall feeling of what this brings, uh, you know, this, the real difficulty with it, but when I could really allow myself to take it in and be with it in body, heart, and mind, then I could see a lot more clearly how many young people came how many people from different ethnic groups and churches and mosques and temples and uh, how young people are organizing around it, how many people uh, from the, our Jewish community, from the Christian community, um, politicians came and there's a lot of energy around organizing and grassroots and being together with this and hearing young people get mobilized this way. Then. I could feel the strength and the resilience and the wisdom and the kindness that was also there to uplift and, and keep me going and um, mm -hmm. fill up on it, you know, and move forward with it. So Beth um, gave us a beautiful quote from her uh, teacher, one of the Rinpoches uh, in the Tibetan tradition, and I'll have to go back and get his name if I lost it. And um, he said, it's important when we are afraid. It's important when we are afraid. And I definitely felt fear that evening, and to some degree still do, on this subject. Um, we cultivate a practice where wisdom arises first. Okay? I'll read it again. It's important when we are afraid, we cultivate a practice where wisdom arises first. Mm, love that. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. beautiful. It sums up your practice. Sums up the practice, and um, so so very true. I'll give you another example of this, um, and we can look for examples in everyday life. The Dharma is everywhere, right? The truth is everywhere. 
a number of years ago when I um, started at one of the clinics that I was working at was a uh, adolescent program in East LA and I was not ready for it. You know, it took a while for me to adjust and learn how to work with the kids. And uh, I, it was a Friday afternoon, late appointment. Almost everyone was gone. And uh, uh, I was exhausted. And this um, teen comes in with his mom. It was really agitated um, and was on drugs, probably. You know, he was. Uh, had been using drugs that day. And uh, at that clinic, you have to kind of sometimes talk and type, and that really agitated him. What are you saying? What are you writing about me? What are you, what are you doing? And he started like really attacking. And at one point he got up and he went to smash my computer. Mm. So it's important when we are afraid, we cultivate a practice where wisdom arises first. So I was afraid and I was also kind of angry about it. Like, come on, it's Friday at 4.30 or 5, you know, like I, I really don't have, I don't have this right now. And uh, I ran next door and I knocked on the door because um, my colleague was still there, um, a very large man. And uh, I just, come on, you know, I just, come on in, help, right, help. Because the guy looked like he was going to smash the place this teen. And I remember my colleague walked in and he looked at the kid and he saw the agitation and the despair and his throwing some things around. And you know, a number of things could have happened. You could call security, you could call the police, you could dial 911, you could do anything. And he just looked at this kid very calmly and said, son, looks like you're having a bad day. <laughs> Let's sit down here on the couch and just talk about it. Let's just find out what happened in your day. Mm -hmm. And the kid calmed right down, mm -hmm. sat down on the couch. They talked. I left to go see mom. And he left calmly and uh, quietly. And uh, it was done, right? So it's an example of holding unpleasant, I feel, right? Holding what we're afraid of, holding what unpleasant, and allowing the, the wisdom to arise when we can hold it and be with it and not push it away and reject. This is a big example. Another example of um, my friend telling me about um, celebrating uh, a birthday with her mom, you know, and... Uh, the mom's quite elderly and having some dementia. And then afterwards, just being with that feeling of the impermanence, that there may not be another birthday like that ever again. And being kind and compassionate, allowing the wisdom and compassion. So when we can sit with Vedana, we can sit with the unpleasant and the painful in our practice, when we sit with it, we don't push it away and we resist it and we can hold it fully in body, mind, thought, we're with it, not judging it, but we're with it, then the practice can support us, presence and being, present moment being, the qualities of being can arise, like wisdom, peace, strength, resilience, 
um, they can come up to meet us so that we're holding the difficult, not just with a small self and a little self, but with a much wider and open capacity. And I think you've experienced that. So this friend said she could just walk with the truth of the way things are or the impermanence of her loved one um, with wisdom, compassion, strength, resilience. Very often our culture, we're just um, swimming in running away from the unpleasant. We can look at our phone and see 9,000 things, right, and get off it. Just quickly, just grab the phone. Um, we could have a couple of extra glasses of wine. Did I say bottles? I meant whoops, glasses. <laughs> right? We could, you know, go and have uh, great food or sweets. Or, uh, I understand for millennials, but for everybody, a new one is to binge on a Netflix series or a series now that there's so much on demand. You can watch show after show till you're completely numb. I kind of like that one myself, but right? So there's so many ways we cannot stay in the Vedana and be with it in a grounded, present moment way through our knowing our body, knowing our thought, knowing the emotion, um, sometimes seeing how it's all organized to arise. Um, and our practice, part of our practice, is learning to be with it, to be with it, even when it's really hard. So uh, another quote from Rumi is, keep your eye on the wounded place, that's where the light gets in. Mm -hmm. right? And Leonard Cohen has that beautiful mm -hmm. little passage, and it's a song, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that song wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. Ring the bell that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything, and that's where the light gets in. You gotta be with the crack to get to the light. And that's our difficulty, right? You gotta be with the crack to get to the light. And uh, Tara Brock has some wonderful teachings on this. And I was listening to her talk and uh, I was listening to it over and over and over again, and I still couldn't fully hear it. It was so rich. Uh, but the reason why she's saying is that we can't always stay with the crack in things. Our imperfection, our vulnerability, the sh or shame, defensiveness, where we're stuck, because immediately we reject it and judge it. Immediately we have a judgment that it should not be there. You know, like uh, being at the protest and not wanting to sob. That should not be there, right? I should just be shouting at the cars. I don't know, right? Like, it should not be there. I should not feel shame here. I should not feel inadequacy here. Uh, I should not just not have the skills that I need here or the fatigue uh, or, or the envy or the anger. It shouldn't be here. And so the first thing we do is we judge, reject, and push away, and that's why we're not getting to where the light gets in, right? And so what she says is um, we have to learn uh, the art of inner surrender. 
This is where we have to learn the art of inner surrender. And we have to release the grip and let go of our resistance. And she says, when we're suffering, we are holding on tight. We're in control mode in a deep way. And the freedom comes when we learn how to inwardly loosen the grip. And it's the surrender that frees us, that surrender into. And there's always that famous quote from Ajahn Chah that everybody and that's who's in the Theravada lineage always goes back to this quote. And he says, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. Right? If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. If you let go absolutely, you get absolute peace. It's not so easy to do. Thank you, Ajahn Chah. <laughs> I'm not in the forest monastery just walking around meditating. It's hard to let go in these times, right? Um, but we need to cultivate this natural release of grasping and resistance. That's what we're really talking about as part of our practice is releasing that grasping and resistance when it's not going the way we think it should go. Right? And it very often doesn't go the way we think it should go. And uh, so she has three suggestions that I'll tell you about and then um, we'll stop there. So the first one is uh, to notice your thought processes about something, which is the third foundation of mindfulness. To notice your thought processes, awareness of thought, and developing the capacity, and this is what we do in meditation, is when the thoughts come in, we kind of let them go. We don't cling or get stuck in them and get lost in a dialogue. We come back maybe to the breath if you're doing concentration practice and we release that thought. We're not getting all caught up in the thought. Um, so it's that awareness that the thought uh, keeps us sometimes stuck in a small mind thinking. A lot of our thoughts loop, they're repetitive, and they're circular, and you just keep going back over this. You're treading over the same landscape over and over and over again, digging a deeper hole, and you're just circling right around that block. And so to know that with awareness that you're stuck in a small reality of things, that maybe your thinking can't get you out of it in this instance. And I go back to the classic story, which I love so much, of the Zen teacher. Um, maybe I love it so much because my mom and dad used to tell me the story all the time, uh, where this uh, seeker goes and travels to Japan many thousands of miles and climbs this big mountain <coughs> to a remote monastery, barely gets in, has to beg to get in, has to beg the teacher to get an interview. They didn't make it easy in those days. You didn't just register on the internet to waken up, right? And uh, he finally gets before the teacher, and um, the teacher's having tea. You know the story, right? And um, this 
young man is telling the teacher why he's worthy of teaching and awakening. All the studying he's done, all the books he's read, all the retreats he's sat, all the teachers he had, all the ideas he has. He's going on and on and on about how much he knows and why he's ready to be taught because he's studied so much and practiced so much. And the Roshi is pouring the tea, and now the cup is overflowing, and the tea is all over the table and the floor, and it's um, saturating the tablecloth, and it's dripping down, and finally the young man stops talking and says, Roshi, <laughs> the teacup is full, right? The teacup is full. And the Roshi turns around and says, so are you, right? You have to empty your cup. And this is a big teaching here, is we have to empty our cup. You need to empty the thought, the pattern of thought, and how we cling, and the way we build our stories, and the way we build a self. You know, we have to empty that cup. Not an easy thing to do. We keep working on letting go of thought. Uh, sometimes it's not a bad idea to lose your mind. <laughs> and we need to lose our mind, right? As a matter of fact, <laughs> those of us who sat for years at Long Beach Meditation, there's a couple of you in here. Um, Victor made this t-shirt. It's your mind, stupid, right? <laughs> and uh, he and I would argue over that all the time. Like I'd say, Victor, you know, you just don't want to call people stupid. You know, we make T-shirts and hats, and like, it just isn't nice. And and he'd say, but it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd have to agree. Like a lot of times, when you're suffering and you're suffering and you're clinging and grasping, and it turns out. It's your mind, stupid. <laughs> no, it turns out to be just that, right? So, I have to dig up one of those t-shirts. Uh, so that would be one, just three steps to see that thought, open up the hand of thought, right? That's what a lot of Zen teachers, open up your hand of thought. And um, the second is um, shifting and opening to what is vulnerable. Well, we talked about that, the crack, right? What is vulnerable? And really going there, be willing to go there, the there, there of it. Really staying with what we want to push away. What we want to push away. And really allowing ourselves to be with it, with compassion. And a lot of our self-compassion classes um, the metta, the loving-kindness classes are all helping us build that capacity to hold something in the field of loving-kindness. The little parts of our disowned self. You know, in the old days we used to say, please don't sweep that under the rug. Remember when we said that? I'm gonna... We've, we've been taught and conditioned to sweep, sweep stuff, that, the icky stuff, under the rug to get it, not to sweep it under the rug, not to, to take the disowned material of our psyche and hold it up to the light. So that's the second thing she says. 
And the third thing is um, <clears throat> fall into something bigger than yourself. Fall into a presence that's bigger than yourself. And we cultivate that through um, loving kindness, compassion practice, presencing practice, dwelling in the heart, joining with humanity, right? I'm not one person that's sobbing on the street for a child. There are many people crying at injustice in the world. I'm one among many, and there are many children. You know, I'm one with all. Our hearts are joined. We're all breathing the same way, this oxygen. I'm one with all of you, and you are one with all of me. We open to that shared humanity and the spaciousness of presence the spaciousness, the boundlessness of presence. We cultivate that, that we drop that small self, that sometimes even in service, you know, we have to ask ourselves, who is serving? Who's talking? Who's showing up, right? Is it this little me or this universal flow that sustains me and is behind me and supports me? this great mystery that keeps my heart pounding and the blood flowing. That's the compassion behind all of us. So, in this moment, and we'll, we'll end here, in this moment, taking a moment to reflect on where that holding and grasping, where that tightening is for you, you know, where that unpleasant Vedana is, where it's hard to go there, it's hard to look, hard to be with. Just noticing that for you today, it changes every day, it changes every hour. And knowing, um, like Rumi said, that it's not there to get in your way or obstruct you. It's not that it shouldn't be there. It's the path there. It's the there there. That is where that light gets in. And the light is the wisdom and the compassion of the practice. <laughs> and just for this moment, seeing if you can bring some loving kindness, some metta, compassion, karuna, to that hard, difficult space, that hard, difficult place that's hard to hold, that vulnerability, unwrapping yourself in loving kindness and compassion, and maybe broadening that out to know that this is a human being, this is humanity. All beings suffer just like this. just like this. And extending our wishes for anyone who's suffering in this way. May they be at peace. May they find wisdom. May I find wisdom. May I find peace. May I find stillness. May I find my sweet surrender 
into what can't be controlled. May I, may I and all beings be at peace with what is. some small group sharing which we did yesterday and what we worked on we made an inquiry question out of uh, this quote it's important when you are afraid that we also cultivate a practice where wisdom arises first so you may want to talk about fear and wisdom fear in your practice or any of the other vulnerable, difficult places, or just the way you use Vedana, where your practice brings you. And to be a little playful, I did a little bit of a collage after one long, hard day <laughs> of uh, the extremes of practice. Sometimes you sit to practice and your mind is like this, right? I'll let it, I'll pass it around. But, right, you get that? Like, there are just days where you're kind of flooded or you're trying to practice momentary awareness and be with yourself and notice, and it's like, ah, right? And then there are days where it's kind of like that, right? And they come and go. It's impermanent, right? I'm not either one. It's this, these states visit. So you could take a look at them if you want to be playful. They're up here. Okay, so groups of two or three or four. Yeah? Can you ask a question one more time? Yes. About the oh, yes, yes, yes. And I, and I really hope I wrote this down correctly. But it's a little late for that. Um, where it is. It's important when we are afraid, when we are afraid, and we could add when we're vulnerable because we're talking about that that we cultivate a practice where wisdom arises first. Thank you. All right, so anybody like to share or have a question? Or what, what came up, what you talked about? Yes? Um, so for me, um, and what I was sharing with everyone was that um, I just am, when I'm feeling fear, my big ones are fear and grief, and um, I can I can shop it, I can eat it occasionally, <laughs> I can wash the dishes over it, uh, call people, get on my computer, those are my methods of um, kind of trying to ignore it, but it's always this monkey on my back, mm. like it's still there, it's sitting there, I've pushed it a little bit to the side, but it is there, and what I found that I have to do, um, because, oh, yeah, I was saying, too, like, I, I don't know if this is from Tara Brock or not, but I even drew a little picture about it. Um, fear times resistance equals suffering, mm -hmm. and um, fear times, some, she said something like an embodied, compassionate, um, felt sense 
equals freedom. Mm -hmm. And what I found that works for me, and, and I have to actually be suffering to, to kind of do this, but when I'm in that suffering place, I will set my timer for seven minutes and I will just sit with it. And with that loving presence and just be with it. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that usually it passes through me to give it that attention mm -hmm. and if I ignore it in the very ways that I ignore it all day long it's still there mm -hmm. um, nagging like chewing slowly at my heart <laughs> whatever and um, I found that that works I I can only handle about seven minutes like that's the only way I can like, if, if I said, oh, I have to sit here with this pain for 20 minutes, I probably would never do it. Mm -hmm. But that mm -hmm. that seven minutes, I can do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I found that that really helped. Thank you for wow. sharing. That's yeah. beautiful. That's yeah. That's well said. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Yes. So that brings me to this question. Yeah. Similarly, what you're saying, something that comes up, we talked about, you know, that fear, and we you talked about the acronym of terrorism, the RAIN, RAIN? Yes. Okay, so the part where you investigate, you recognize the awareness, the investigation piece, okay, I, I'm somewhere, maybe I'm in a work meeting or I'm working with a client, and something comes up, whether it's the thought or the sensation in my body, and I'm, no, I'm noticing, I'm acknowledging it, but I can't just like break down in tears, or I can't like, I'm, I'm just noticing, do I, was it I identify it? I know the end is not to, like, not to identify with whatever it is, but do I, can I, if I'm gonna look at it, and I, I say, okay, I'll look at it later on. I'll look at that piece later, because right now I can't. But I'm acknowledging it. I'm not just bypassing, which you know maybe yeah. I've not done in the past. Right. Not, not even felt it, but I felt it. I feel it. It's here, and I'm not gonna. I will look at it later when I go home, and maybe when I go home and look at it, the intensity is not up here. Yeah. That's what I've done before. Or I've coached people to do good, bad, or indifferent. And I think to add on that too is say you are at that meeting and you can't sob, right, or break down, mm -hmm. uh, or show a emotion, a difficult emotion. Mm -hmm. I've had, of course, I've been at the meeting where I feel rage, you know, too, yeah. right? And you can't yeah. yell at people right. the way you want mm -hmm. either. Uh, that's a good time to do a loving kindness, a metta practice, mm -hmm. and a compassion a practice. Compassion. and. Do the phrases, mm -hmm. and you could even use this mm -hmm. kind touch, yeah. and people don't really know. Don't. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of us have been in meetings where we're doing metta for everyone and ourselves all through the entire meeting, <laughs> so that we're behaving well, you know, or just being appropriate. To, mm -hmm. Yeah, but thank you for bringing that up. It's true. It's a good one. Anybody else? One more? So I didn't tell you what happened with that young man, and I wanted to give you the ending to that story because it's a great story. Um, what my colleague found out about this young man, maybe 15 years old, uh, mom, single parent, 
and they're really struggling with money. So this young man not only goes to high school, but he's a waiter. Like a lot, a lot of hours, almost full time, because he has to help mom. And at that particular restaurant, they use a lot of drugs, which happens in workplaces. Sometimes when you're doing some repetitive, boring, or manual labor, it gets into the culture that you're drinking or doing a lot of drugs, and it's not good for a young brain. And he was having a lot of trouble, and the day that he came, he had tried to go to the roof of his high school to jump off of it, oh, actually, gosh. yeah. And luckily, the roof was locked, and um, mom took a look at him and knew he was in trouble and brought him into the clinic. So that's how he got there that day. Um, and uh, I didn't see him. He didn't come back for a long, long time. And one day, he came back. A couple of years later, he came back as a senior. He came back, which is very unusual. And he came in to see me, and he said, um, I know I made a really bad impression on you that day. <laughs> But I wanted to tell you that uh, I got accepted to USC for a full ride. <laughs> and what he said happened was that um, he was really messing up. As it's hard to be a kid in these conditions, you know, it's hard. It's just hard to get through high school, but have to work, you know. He, uh, it was a friend of his boss kind of found out the story that he had to help mom and the friend had money and said look if you pass high school and you don't do drugs and you show up and you're a good worker um, I'll help you and he did and the kid really pulled it together and he came to tell me that it's just beautiful so yeah, really amazing how, how the world works. Um, so on that note, uh, I'll read you a quote that was read uh, by one of the teachers, just for fun. This is from the Dalai Lama. Uh, someone asked the Dalai Lama, what surprises you most in this world? <laughs> you can almost know, right? He said, what surprises me most is human beings. They sacrifice their health for money. Then they sacrifice their money to recuperate their health. <laughs> and then they become so anxious about the future, they can't enjoy the present. Often human beings live as though they're never going to die, and then die having never really lived. So. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.